0: Welcome to Waterstone Community Church. In this series, we are delving into the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We will study how Jesus challenges others' expectations of who the Messiah ought to be. As he goes on to be crucified and vanquish death, we will discuss what he taught his disciples along the way. Waterstone is located off of C-470 and Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Our weekly services are held on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Learn more about us at waterstonechurch.org. A
1: reading from the book of Mark. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. "'We are going up to Jerusalem,' he said." and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him, be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he is calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. The word of the Lord.
2: Good morning. We've been working our way through the book of Mark. The fundamental question that uh, Mark has been wrestling with is simply this Who is Jesus? How you answer that question is vitally important. After all, if we're uh, disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, uh, we're to imitate him. We're to have his mind. We're to become like he is. So our understanding of him really shapes our life. So we want to get that right. The fact is, though, oftentimes we get it wrong. We're, we're off. Uh, historically, for a number of years, there's been a group of scholars that have been on the search for the historical Jesus. It's had different iterations through history. The latest has been the Jesus Seminar. They basically are trying to get behind the Gospels to see what Jesus really, really was like. So they pick and choose and have criteria and vote on who, which stories about him are true and accurate. Somebody made a very insightful comment about the Jesus that they came up with. He said about these people, they're like people who, who are searching for Jesus and decide to look down a well to find him. And they don't realize that the Jesus they see is really simply a reflection of themselves off the bottom of the well, the water there. There's a lot of truth to that. We have a tendency to make Jesus a reflection of ourselves. That's true not just for them. That is true for us. Mark is going to help us with that. We're going to, to, to look at chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. Um, He kind of reveals to us who Jesus is and really gives us some insight as to how we should respond. Before we look at that text, though, I want to put that text in its literary context. Um, The reason for this is is that typically when we go to the Gospels, we uh, read them like they're a history book, almost uh, as if uh, it's kind of the video camera view of Scripture we think what was going on is the, the the gospel writers are just observing what took place and writing it down, oh that happened and then this happened and that happened so that what we have is simply a chronological listing of the events that took place. That is not what the gospels are. Now now the gospels are true, they're historically accurate, but they're well the gospels are telling a story. They're writing to make a theological point. They're trying to communicate truth to us about who Jesus is and what he did, what his values were, and and in a sense, paint this portrait, but the kind of portrait they want us to see. And what that means is is that they are very selective about what events they include and which events they leave out. It, It means that they don't always tell us things in chronological order. We always assume it's in chronological order, but it's obviously not. If you look at the different gospels, they list events in a different order. Why is that? And sometimes you get different snippets of dialogue. Well, the author's controlling that because he he, he wants certain pieces of dialogue that'll help him make the point that he's trying to make. He's telling a story. What that means is we can't simply read it as history. We have to read it as a story that's true and understand and look for what the author is trying to tell us in how he tells the story. Now, if we miss that, then we think, what's the big point? It's just a series of events. And for Mark, it's not just a series of events. Let's look at the context for the passage we're going to look at. Um, If you go back, this section of Mark actually begins back in chapter eight there's a transition but this section is book ended by the healing of a blind man and the healing of a blind man in chapter 10 and both these healings are what uh, scholars call enacted parables and Mark does this often he takes a physical reality or a physical event and uses it to communicate a spiritual truth that's true in both of these healings of the blind men. Let's look at the first one, the healing of the blind men in chapter 8. It's really kind of a strange thing. If you go back, you realize that Jesus goes up to this guy who's blind, this is kind of gross, spits on his eyes, okay? Then reaches out his hands, touches the guy, and then asks him, well, okay, do you see? And the guy says, well, kind of, people are like trees. And you go, what? What? Did, did Jesus not eat his Wheaties that morning? Is he just on low power? <laughs> Can he? What's the deal? <laughs> so he tries again. And suddenly the guy sees. But there's more going on there. He is using this healing a physical reality to portray a spiritual reality. This blind man is healed in stages. Blind, physical blindness is often a parallel to spiritual blindness to show how different people are seeing Jesus in different ways. The religious leaders, they're totally blind. His disciples, they're like this blind guy. They're starting to get it, but they don't quite understand who Jesus is. This guy down here, Bartimaeus, he's going to get it completely say, Nick, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Right after this, there's a declaration of Peter, right? You're, who, Jesus asks, who, who, who who am I? And and Peter gets it, you're the Messiah, right? And then right after that, Jesus predicts his death. And what does Peter do? He he rebukes Jesus. (laughs) It's like he sees trees. He gets it, but he doesn't get it. And Jesus wants him to get it. In fact, he predicts his death once Then twice, and then a third time, each time giving more detail. And the disciples still don't get it. They're like the blind man. They only see trees. Bartimaeus, we'll see, gets it completely. So we're going to look at that. I mean, it's a very carefully constructed narrative. You'll see how he ties some things together in this passage between uh, his announcement and the disciples' response and the blind man. Uh, we're going to look first at Jesus' prediction of his death. Then we're going to look at James and John's response. And then we're going to look at Bartimaeus, the blind man, and tie it all together. So let's go to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Now, now usually the crowd would kind of go before Jesus, but not here. Jesus is set on Jerusalem because he's now headed towards his death and the confrontation the end of his ministry, the culmination. So now he, he's really determined. He's out front. I'm, he's going for it. And the disciples are astonished. One, he really is the Messiah. He's going to Jerusalem. Things are going to happen now. And some of them are afraid because they understand this means confrontation with the Romans. This is going to to result in in a, a, a messianic war. So they're afraid. And then again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to go up to Jerusalem. He said, and the Son of Man, which is his favorite title for himself. It actually comes from Daniel 7. It's an indication that it literally means the human one, but it's a a sign of him being the Messiah. Will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death. So the religious leaders are going to condemn Jesus to death, but they can't kill him. They don't have that authority. So what do they have to do? They have to turn them over to the Gentiles or the Romans because they have the power to execute someone. Turn them over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him. And notice the detail. I mean, Jesus is telling him exactly what's going to happen to him. And it's violent. Mock, spit, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. The resurrection should have never been a surprise to any of them. (laughs) You read that and you go, how come they don't get this? Why? Why? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. Oftentimes, we have assumptions and expectations. And those assumptions and expectations color what we see. Um, They had assumptions and expectations about the Messiah, right? They expected the Messiah to to restore the temple. They expected the Messiah to kick out the Romans. They expected the Messiah to institute this this kind of justice. It was justice mainly for the Jews. And and now Jesus is saying, no, it's not going to, that's not how it's going to come down. But they couldn't see it. That's not only true for them, that's true for us. We we have assumptions and expectations and and biases that color how we see Jesus. It's always struck me as really interesting. I'm not trying to make a political statement here, but it's always struck me as interesting that white evangelicals in America are pretty convinced that Jesus would be a Republican and a capitalist. (laughs) What's really interesting to me, the black church in America pretty much sees him as a Democrat. Oh. and uh, European Christians see him definitely as a socialist now aren't they all reading the same Bible I mean just <laughs> just look how we portray Jesus in the art and the movies he's always a white Caucasian flowing hair good looking <laughs> folks Jesus was a Middle Eastern peasant probably with dark skin and Isaiah tells us he wasn't very good looking but that's not how we want to see him, is it? We want him to be like us. And what that does is it causes a kind of spiritual blindness. And you know what's scary? Is we can be spiritually blind and not even know it. We can be really, really close to Jesus, like the disciples. I mean, they're with him constantly. And they're just seeing trees. We can be like that. Luther, Martin Luther, thought it was fine to persecute Jews and kill Anabaptists because they're heretics. Of course, they believe what you and I believe. Uh, Christians, southern Christians in the antebellum south thought that it was fine to own slaves. And even justified it with their Bibles, not realizing that the slavery in the scriptures is very different than the slavery they were participating in. And in fact, Jesus was fine with that. It's okay to own another human being. The church in Nazi Germany <laughs> supported the Nazi program. It's okay to 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 take care of the Jewish problem. I don't know how they dealt with the fact that Jesus was Jewish. But somehow that was okay. We shake our heads at that. How could they? Do you ever wonder what history will say about us? Jesus is the king that came to die. That has huge implications. It's not what they expected. It's not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. So how do they respond? Let's look at Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. <laughs> Teacher, they said, we, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's like kind of going when you were little and you went to your mom. Mom, tell me you're going to say yes. <laughs> right? And then you, because you know it's a sketchy request. <laughs> they know this is a sketchy request. What do you want me to do for you? Hold on to that question, because he asked the same question of Bartimaeus. It ties the two together. Uh, this is a finely constructed narrative. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. <laughs> How can they be so presumptuous, arrogant, narcissistic? I mean, come on. Not. No, Remember what they expect of the Messiah. He's going to go and he's going to set up his kingdom. And they're just like campaign, campaign operatives, right? If you, you participate in a political campaign, if your candidate wins, what do you expect? A little payback, right? A little position. They're just getting, they're requesting early. Hey, can, can we be your advisors? You know, one of us sit on the left, one of us sit on the right. It, it, those would be good spots for us. We're, we're good at that, Jesus. Notice his response. He says, uh, you don't know what you're asking. (laughs) They don't have a clue. Just trees. Um, Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized? Those are metaphors for suffering. Can you suffer like I'm going to suffer? Can you face the baptism? I'm going to face the baptism of suffering of the cross. Oh, we, we can. Not only they're blind about him, they're blind about themselves. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized. They don't, they don't have a clue what's coming or what it's going to mean for their lives or how it will impact them. But they're going to walk through some heavy stuff. You, you will face all of that. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. Uh, we don't know who that's prepared some some people think it's a reference to the 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 people the two men crucified on either side of Jesus I don't don't know if it's that or not but it goes on when the ten heard about this they became indignant with James and John what's really going on for them is dang it they got there first (laughs) so Jesus sees a teachable moment he called them together and said you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles in positions of power and authority lord it over them. And this is interesting. And their high officials, literally their great ones, exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Now, this is fascinating. This is not an admonition. He's not saying it shouldn't be like that for you. It's a statement. He's saying, uh, in the kingdom, it is not this way. Because the value system in the kingdom is a little different. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And and a servant was a little higher up than a slave because a slave was owned. A servant could just be a paid servant. You have to become a slave of all. And why? Because for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve... And to give his life as a ransom for many. He's turning everything upside down. So what do we learn from James and John? I think the first thing we learn is our values. Our values have to reflect the values of our king. If he's the king who came to die, then that has to reshape what's important to us, what are priorities to us what our values are. What is it that we think marks a successful life? Came across this uh, little description of uh, success at different stages. Age four, success is not peeing in your pants. Twelve, success is having friends. Sixteen, success is a driver's license. At 25, success is having sex with married. Thirty-five, success is having money. At 50, success is having money. At 60, success is having sex when you're married. (laughs) At 70, success is having a driver's license. At 75, success is having friends. (laughs) Yeah, and at 80, success is not peeing in your pants. (laughs) Puts life in perspective, especially if you're on the back half of that. what do we think makes us great? How do you measure that your life has been great or a success? Is it is it because you've achieved the American dream? Is it because you've become proficient in uh, y- your profession? Is it because you own a large business or is it because you're part of a, uh, a, a large church? Uh, it, is it because... Uh, uh, is success marked by the digits in your salary or, or the amount you saved or the size of your retirement accounts? Is success measured by the, the size of the house you live in? Is success measured by your popularity? Is, is it measured by your fame? Is it measured by your beauty? Is it measured by your... What, what, what are we looking for as the measure of success? You you see, what we're taught in terms of our values and our culture is that uh, it's like life is a circle and we're to be at the center and and we're successful if we can get other people to serve us, look up to us. It's all about us. And, And Jesus is saying here something very profound and it grates against us because it's so, so, Contrary to everything we taught, uh, we're taught, and it, and how we operate, Jesus is saying re- life is not a circle. For those in the kingdom, uh, we should have a cruciform framework, a cross-shaped life, and we're not at the center of that. Jesus is, a- and success is loving God, serving Him, and serving others. And greatness isn't measured by how many serve you, but greatness is measured by how many you serve. I want that to sink in because I think it's one of those areas that we give lip service to but don't live out very well. In the kingdom... Greatness is measured by your service of others. That's true for us as individuals. That's true for us in families. That's true for us in churches. That's true for us in our community. That's even true for us as a nation. Probably you're familiar with with the campaign slogan, Make America Great Again. I decided I like that slogan if you use Jesus' definition of great. Because if you use Jesus' definition of great, then it's not okay just to put yourself or your tribe first. In the Old Testament, greatness of a nation is not measured by its military might. It is not measured by its gross national product. It it, it is not measured by its position and and, and a power on the international stage. In, In the Old Testament, God measures greatness by how that nation takes care of its weakest. And in the Old Testament, that's the quartet of the vulnerable. That's the poor. That's the orphan that's the widow, that's the immigrant. If our greatness as a community, as a church, as a state, as a nation, as a person, is measured, what if it's measured by how we take care of the weakest? How do we take care of the poor in our midst, the marginalized, the oppressed? How do we take care of the, those with special needs? How do we take care of those who are dying? How do we take care of the unborn? What's that mean for us if that becomes the measure of greatness? I was listening to the guys on the Bible Project, Tim Mackey, and he, was, he made this comment. He said, you know, if you're really comfortable and you feel like you've got a good handle on Jesus and your faith, don't read your Bible. Because if you read your Bible and you read it well, it's going to make you squirm. It's going to challenge your biases. It's going to challenge your preconceptions. I mean, it's a scary thing to think about what would we or how would we respond if Jesus showed up today little dark-skinned Jewish guy from the Middle East and started saying all these radical things that challenged our value system and and, and our way of doing things and our superiority and our biases and our bigotry. I I mean, would we respond just like they did? I, I mean, remember, the people who had the biggest problem with Jesus were the religious folk. Because he just didn't measure up to expectation. So let's uh, talk about Bartimaeus. Maybe he'll be a little more comfortable. Then they came to Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city... Uh, a blind man Bartimaeus which means son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside begging now the entourage of Jesus in them are heading up to Jerusalem it's about 17 miles it's a elevation gain of about 3,500 feet. So they've gone through Jericho, nothing much happening there, heading to Jerusalem. They come across this blind guy. It's interesting. The only time we're told, given the name of someone that Jesus healed in the gospel of Mark is this, Bartimaeus. He he must like Bartimaeus. He wants us to pay special attention to him. And, And there's some evidence that he participated later on in the early church, sitting by the roadside, begging. When he heard that it was Jesus' Nazareth, Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, Son of David, <laughs> have mercy on me. That's the only time the phrase Son of David is used in the Gospel of Mark. And, and it's a messianic title saying, uh, this is the king. This is the one we've been waiting for. Bartimaeus may be physical blind, physically blind, but he's not just seeing trees. He's getting it. he's getting it Uh, have mercy on me the text doesn't say this but I think Bartimaeus is thinking about Isaiah chapter 35 because in Isaiah chapter 35 we're told about what the Messiah is going to do and one of the things it implies there is that he's going to give sight to the blind (laughs) so Bartimaeus has high hopes man uh Jesus stopped and said, call him. Now, (laughs) Bartimaeus isn't a very pleasant fellow. I mean, he's blind, he's a beggar, he's always needy, he's always dependent on people, he's rude, he's loud, he's obnoxious, they tell him to shut up, he doesn't, he keeps at it, he's dirty, he smells, he's not the kind of guy you would invite over for dinner, he's the margins of society, he's uh, the marginal, the religious society, he's not the kind of guy you'd encourage to come to worship. I mean, you just want to stay as far away from Bartimaeus as you can. And what did the powerful do to Bartimaeus? what they always do with those less powerful. Shut up. Shh. Jesus has important stuff to do. But he's persistent. And this is amazing. Jesus stopped. Literally, the text says, Jesus stood still and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside. This guy has faith. He's throwing... Look, Bartimaeus didn't have a closet of designer clothes. He didn't have a garage with all his extra stuff. Bartimaeus probably had one cloak, and this was it. And it was key to his craft, right? He was a beggar, and he's blind, so he would lay his cloak on the ground, and when somebody would give him money it would be on his cloak, so at the end of the day, he could gather up his cloak and make sure he got all his stuff. And Barnabas just throws it aside. Then we get this question, and this is the same question that Jesus asked of James and John. What do you want me to do for you? Now, James and John had an answer. They wanted to use Jesus to get privilege and power and a comfortable life. Please, Jesus, come on. Let me sit on the right or the left. Make life grand for me. It's kind of the health and wealth stuff, right? And we always look down at the people who kind of are the health and wealth gospel, not realizing that oftentimes we're the same. My son made this profound observation. He said, Dad, you're just as much health and wealth as anybody else. I said, no, I am not. He said, oh, yes, you are. You just want emotional health and wealth. And I thought, dang. Shh. Shut up. <laughs> Bartimaeus wants something different. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. He's been blind his whole life. I want the one thing you got to want for me. And remember, blindness, physical blindness is... Parallel to spiritual blood. He wants to see, he wants the truth, and he's getting it. He knows this is the son the David and he has faith. He throws his garment away because he believes. Isaiah 35, this guy, this guy's gonna give me sight. I mean, what kind of faith does it take to ask Jesus for sight? And notice what happens. He says, Go, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Good stuff. What do we learn from Bartimaeus? Um, I think what we're going to learn is how we are to respond to uh, uh, how we're to to respond to Jesus. In fact, I'm going to put the second one up here. We must acknowledge Jesus as Lord and and, uh, we are to follow him. Even to the cross. Somebody let me explain those a little bit. Somebody sent me a, a email question. I had preached on this notion of the gospel of the kingdom, and I, I made the comment that in the New Testament, there's no incidence of someone becoming a believer by, by yeah. praying to Jesus, or even the language of accepting to Jesus. There's one place where it talks about receiving him. This person wrote back and said, well, then how how do we become believers? Is is prayer illegitimate? And prayer's not illegitimate. But it's very interesting in the New Testament how a person becomes a believer. You see the pattern here with Bartimaeus. And and it's twofold. And and both, I think, help these two aspects, help us understand the notion of belief. The first, we have to acknowledge Jesus the Lord. You, You remember Bartimaeus called Jesus Rabboni. That literally means master or Lord. And in this story, it's an interesting form of the word. Uh, um, It's an intensive. And it's the only time it's used in the Gospels other than in John. So so the first thing that Bartimaeus gets, because he's getting spiritual side, is he understands who Jesus is, that Jesus is king, that he's Lord. And it's this, when he says Lord, it's a submission of his will. It's Romans 10 if we believe in our heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead and proclaim him as Lord. That's where the gospel begins to take root when we submit our will to the reality of who Jesus is as king. It's this this aspect of allegiance. Then the second thing is you follow Jesus as king even to the cross. In this story, it's interesting, when Jesus comes on, to Bartimaeus. He is sitting by the side of the road. At the end of the story, he is standing up and walking along the road with Jesus. In Mark, going along the road is always a mark of discipleship. And the common frame that Mark uses for a disciple is their one who is following Jesus. So in Mark chapter 1, what does he tell Peter and Andrew? Follow me. In Mark chapter 2, when he comes across Levi, what does he say? Follow me. In Mark chapter 8, when he says, uh, all those who want to be my disciple must take up their cross and what? Follow me. In chapter 10, when he talks to the young rich ruler, he says, you got to go sell all your stuff and follow me. When Peter says, hey, Lord, what's going to happen to us? We've given up everything to... Follow you. Mark of discipleship is following Jesus. And this word for follow in this story, let me get technical for a moment, is an inceptive imperfect in terms of the verb tense. So who cares? What it, means, what it means is an action starts and then continues. Look, folks, the way you mark a disciple... The way you know you're a follower of Jesus is you follow Jesus. We measure whether or not a person's a Christian or not by a conversion story. If you can tell me how you prayed the prayer or walked the aisle, then you're in. The New Testament knows nothing of that. The New Testament says uh, here's how you tell if you're a believer Is Jesus your Lord? Are you following Him? now i got to wrestle. See, Mark's whole point is, look, Jesus is the king who came to die. And because he's the king who came to die, we have to embrace the values of the kingdom where greatness is measured by service. And, and we need to follow our Lord even to the cross. So I want you to reflect on this last question for a few moments and then the band will come back out. But I want you to ask yourselves this. Am I following Jesus? Am I living a cruciform life, loving God, loving others? Am I marking greatness by my service to the least? Am I following Jesus?
0: Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Our weekend services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thanks for listening.